Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to the Curve Beam Connect podcast, where we give doctors, patients, and anyone interested in healthcare and technology a look into how our solutions are changing medicine. I'm your host, Vinti Singh, Marketing Director here at Curvebeam. This episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Celine Park, MD, MBA, a foot and ankle orthopedic surgeon and professor of orthopedics at Duke Health. He founded The Fantasy Doctors, a YouTube channel in which he combines data and his medical expertise to comment on pro athletes' injuries so people can make informed decisions for their fantasy teams. In addition, he and his wife organized medical conferences in India to bring specialized knowledge about foot and ankle orthopedics to surgeons there. Welcome, Dr. Park. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. And I have to admit, I am feeling a little bit overwhelmed because you are involved in so much. We have so much to talk about. I almost don't know where to begin. So, uh, but let's just, uh, let's start with talking a little bit about your surgical practice. So we're seeing a rise in the use of patient-specific 3D printed implants. And you actually started doing total talus replacements about two years ago. Uh, but could you talk about the different types types of surgeries that you are using 3D printed solutions for and what improvements you've observed? Yeah, actually, the 3D printing world has changed dramatically uh, the, the offerings that we can provide to patients from different pathologies. And actually, we started using 3D printed cages, and that was really my introduction into the 3D printing world uh, about five to six years ago. And at that time, we were using it for difficult cases, whether it was osteomyelitis, of the ankle or the shin bone or even uh, the midfoot. Um, and then it evolved into from osteomyelitis to difficult ankle fusions or patients who had uh, recurrent non-unions. And now it's evolved into avascular necrosis of different bones. And then uh, and basically what happened over the years is it slowly changed from just offering cages for fusion work or bone work to offering uh, articular surface implants, meaning total taluses, total naviculars, uh, we've done fibulas, we've done medial malleolis. Uh, the limit is only your imagination with 3D printing, and that's what's amazing about it. And we are offering patients solutions that they could never have before. And I actually noticed, I read that Duke surgeons have performed the highest number of total talus replacements anywhere. How did Duke sort of evolve to be the, the center of that type of procedure? It all started with probably my first case, which is at this point about four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had rarely seen avascular necrosis. And the reality is it probably saw me more than I saw it. And this was a patient who we had tried to do a revascularization procedure on, and that had failed. And she really wanted a non-fusion option. And, and by then, I had already had some experience with 3D printing. And I said, you know, Let's try this 3D printing idea of a total talus. I hadn't seen it before, but I saw in Asia that they had done non-3D printed total tail eye hmm. with pretty good results. And I figured if they could get good results with non-3D printed, then we could get hopefully even better with uh, an anatomic 3D printed implant. Right. And that was my index, pers- index case. And soon thereafter, 
I started seeing one, then two, then three avascular necrosis patients. Mm -hmm. And and what ended up happening is when we started offering the solution to those few patients, you know, there are patient groups uh, that these patients find themselves on, whether it's local or national or even international. Um, and, And the word got out that, hey, there is this option now for avascular necrosis of the talus. And now it's exploded. I mean, every day when I'm in clinic, I am probably seeing two to three cases of avascular necrosis from somewhere around the world. And I'm getting pinged through social media or through my office staff on one or two other international cases that are asking to be uh, opinionized on. So it is amazing how much avascular necrosis is out there. And I just lived before with my head buried in the sand, not recognizing it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I did not realize that it was that common either. Uh, that's incredible that you're seeing such a volume. Can you at your site at Duke, um, are you able to submit weight bearing CT scans? I know that each one of these cases, when you're doing a total tailless replacement requires a CT scan for the company to actually build the, uh, the model. Um, are you able to use weight bearing CT scans in that design process? When we first started out, we were unsure if that would be possible, and we really stayed true to more traditional CT scans. Mm -hmm. But now we are able to use the weight-bearing CT to plan uh, to get a more accurate CAD drawing and then be able to plan the the 3D printed implant. So absolutely. Great. And when you say more accurate CAD, do you mean because the foot is in actual biomechanical alignment? You got it. Absolutely. Okay. And what about uh, the fact that uh, with our systems, you can do a bilateral scan. Has there been any advantage to being able to see the contralateral side in the planning process? We will almost always, almost always get bilateral CT scans. It is critical because sometimes you don't appreciate that there is some collapse of the talus um, and I'm, I'm particularly talking about avascular necrosis of the talus right now. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you don't appreciate that that there is a little bit of deformity on the talus because you can't recognize it on the X-ray. And you get a CT, and now you have a deformity, and you're trying to figure out what is the true anatomic position. Mm-hmm. That is where the contralateral side, as long as it's normal, really helps. Mm-hmm. For patients who have deformity work or ankle or, or osteomyelitis or uh, failed ankle fusions, again, the contralateral side is fantastic because we know where the normal anatomy should be. (laughs) And as we plan these cages, we can then template out not only the, the, the size and, and the anatomy of the cage to match the normal anatomy, (laughs) but we can also restore alignment and leg length when we know what the other anatomy looks like. Right. That's great. Have you heard any feedback from your vendor who you use as far as the weight bearing CT scans? Do they have any preference, you know, as far as what is submitted from you as a surgeon? I, I don't think so. I think they're willing to work with whatever, whatever the surgeon can provide. And the reality is weight bearing CTs are not prevalent in every single health system. So there are patients who come in, for example, to see me. In fact, today I saw a patient from Kentucky, another from Tennessee, and one from Hawaii, mm-hmm. and they just don't have weight-bearing CTs close to them. So uh, the vendor hasn't really, they, they don't mind which whatever way we can get a CT to them, they're fine to work with. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge for us as a surgeon is that it's just not all over the place, widely prevalent where we can get patients to get that technology in the study that we want. Gotcha. But I guess Duke does have an advantage that you do happen to have one on site. So if you are doing the imaging for your patients, they at least have access to that technology. 
Absolutely. So continuing with this theme of innovation, at Duke, you were recently named the Director of Digital Strategy and Innovation for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Um, And my understanding is that that's a new position in the department. What are Duke's overall goals and what will you be overseeing? So that's a great question. You know, uh, I've had a lot of experience and interest and a passion for the crossroads of orthopedics and uh, and innovation and technology. And so as I was looking for something more to do or something different to do in the department, I had this idea that with technology evolving so quickly, so rapidly, Mm -hmm. that it would be great to have almost like a chief technology officer type role within the department. And so uh, on September 1st, I assumed uh, and created that position uh, with the blessing of the, of the chairman. Mm-hmm. And really, he's given me carte blanche to develop it any way I want. Now, having said that, that's great because there's no direction, but it's, but it's also a challenge because there's no direction. Right. From my perspective, when we look at technology, it really is pervasive throughout the entire patient experience. And that begins before they ever see you. So when they're online Mm -hmm. and looking at websites, looking at social media, looking at reviews on who surgeons are that they will potentially go seek their care. Mm -hmm. Then it goes into their first interactions with the office and the phone calls. Then it goes to the interaction in the office, then whether they have surgical care, non-surgical care, and follow-up. So from my perspective, I'm interested in the entire spectrum of care and the technology innovations that can occur throughout that entire interaction. So where are you, I mean, this is talking about technology in the orthopedic department. There's so many different directions that you could go with that. Uh, So where are you starting? What are the projects that you're initiating this with? Yeah, so for now, I am in the stage of just trying to find out the lay of the land, decide what are the technologies that are currently available, where are the things that we may be able to integrate with uh, our current practices at Duke Orthopedics, but then also ways that we can leverage our own experience and expertise at Duke Orthopedics to be able to be part of the innovation cycle, either with those vendors or to separate vendors, or even, you know, in my mind, even a, an entire different, you know, brand new company. Mm-hmm. So currently, I am just getting a survey of the land, of uh, the landscape, and then I will start prioritizing where I think we really need to focus. There are some low-hanging fruit out there. For example, your digital presence on the internet mm-hmm. and being able to expand that and make it more meaningful for patients. Doing things, for example, uh, like like smart chat boxes so that there's some AI behind the patient's first visits to the Duke orthopedic website, Mm -hmm. and they can actually put in some questions and queries into a chat box and there's AI behind it and it can direct those answers that are that uh, the patient's seeking and looking for, Mm -hmm. or even be able to make an appointment for, for physicians. Um, So there's some low hanging fruit that I want to go after, but there's some very esoteric things that I'd love to be able to participate in at some point, whether it's augmented reality and and usage in the operating room Mm -hmm. or looking at ways to transform uh, robotic uh, uh, presence in a more meaningful way in the operating room. The, The nice thing about this is there's so many different places I can go and it's really going to be about where I see the opportunities and where the the department aligns with that and and, uh, things that I'm passionate about. Well, bringing it back to 3D printing, the indications that the trend could be that 
the actual 3D printing takes place at the facility itself which could have a lot of benefits to you. Um, I know this might be more of a long-term goal, but do you potentially see Duke having a 3D printing lab on site for your patients who are getting some of these custom solutions? So it's curious you bring that up because I've been saying this for about five to seven years now <laughs> that the future for me is basically where there's a 3D, a sterile 3D printer in every operating room mm-hmm. and whether it's the morning of the case or the day before the case, it would have to be sterile and it would have to be rapid enough that I could look at the bone, you know, look at the patient and say, okay, I want, and I'm going to pick a vendor. Let's just say I want the striker fibula plate Mm -hmm. and it will print out the plate. It'll print out the screws based on a CT scan. So it knows what sizes of the screw Mm -hmm. and It'll be available and ready to go. So if you think about inventory management, it's gone, right? You don't have to worry about it. It's on-the-fly printing. It's on-the-fly inventory. And it really is kind of the way I think the future will be probably another 10 to 15 years from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This will be to your question you're asking about Duke. We already have one of the 3D printing companies for lower extremities is homegrown out of Duke. Mm-hmm. And although it, they're not providing same-day 3D printing, sterile 3D printing, they're already housed within our university. Okay. And they're already providing 3D printed solutions. So that's not exactly where we're talking the future would be, but it's the next step. Okay. Would you like to talk a little bit about that company? You know, there are three players currently in the lower extremity space in 3D printing. Mm-hmm. It's one of them. It's one of the younger ones. It's 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 founded by one of the Duke uh, biomedical engineers. And, um, you know, all of these companies are really doing some pioneering work that I think is is going to, has already and will continue to revolutionize care for patients. Absolutely. Uh, kind of along the same lines with on-the-spot, on-site 3D printing. So artificial intelligence and deep machine learning, it's become pervasive in the medical headlines. What are you personally most looking forward to as far as how the power of AI can be harnessed in foot and ankle evaluation and treatment? I think that AI is a broad term that everybody throws around right now, not necessarily knowing what it means, but it's exactly what you're talking about. Machine learning, using data, and really doing a deep dive into the data in ways that our human mind can't really wrap ourselves around, Mm -hmm. heads around, but but the machine learning can do. The the challenge for us is trying to be able to uh, mine that data in a way that is meaningful to use for Mm -hmm. a decision-making process. And I think that's kind of where we are right now in medicine. I do think that over time, AI will be able to tell us that, you know, that patient's a candidate for an ankle fusion, that one's a candidate for an ankle replacement, or that one's a candidate for a a derotational bunion procedure, whereas this one could get a, you know, a distal chevron or an MIS procedure. I think it will eventually be part of the fabric of how we treat patients. We're not there yet, but we will be. I also think AI will, over time, give us an idea of potentially what the best implants are to use for a patient's a specific patient based on their demographics and based on certain characteristics that they may or may not have. Mm -hmm. Because right now, again, I'm in the foot and ankle world. That's where I live. But I'm going to pick, again, an example. If we look at ankle replacements, we believe that for the most part, all of these ankle replacements are created equally. But if you could start plugging in 
a lot of data into uh, an AI platform, there may be differences depending on patient's characteristics. And one may actually be much better than the other. It's just that we don't have the capacity to do those longitudinal deep dives from uh, from the human brain perspective. So mm-hmm. I think it will be very, very beneficial. And then the last part is the recovery part, right? I mean, AI will be integrated eventually into smart wearable devices and technologies so that we can do remote uh, monitoring of patients. We'll be able to do remote PT. They'll be able to optimize their their therapy, their biomechanics, and hopefully their outcomes with that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Same question, is Duke doing anything to build those foundational building blocks towards any sort of AI endeavors, working with any other third parties or anything like that? So Duke is doing some things more from the physical therapy perspective and using AI to provide uh, smart PT solutions. It's in its infancy. (laughs) It's being validated. You know, you'll see more and more universities start doing this. But from my perspective, as director of digital strategy and innovation, Mm -hmm. these are the exciting platforms to really do a deeper dive and a a more meaningful uh, development process. So how will AI, what is the, what are you building in the PT realm? Are you able to talk about that a little bit more? Right now, it's just more about remote PT and being able to use, uh, whether it's an app on your phone or an app on your on your iPad, or ways to monitor home PT. Okay. Uh, I think that it gets better than that over time where you don't even have an app and you just have your phone mm-hmm. and it is able to give you direct feedback as to doing uh, a proper PT mm-hmm. or improper PT and to be able to set your goals. And I envision, again, a, a future where you just put on a smart knee sleeve and using your phone, you can know exactly the ideal way you need to do your PT. And then using that smart sleeve or sock or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you're trying to mimic the ideal ways to do PT. So, um, but we are just at the tip of the iceberg for all of this. Are you piloting this at all with any of your patients or it's still very much under development? It's being used currently, uh, trialed more in the total joint space and okay. then total knee replacement patients, but for, for multiple reasons. It's just a, you know, the, the range of motion of the knee is just much simpler than the foot or the ankle mm-hmm. uh, joints. It's just one plane. It's a much higher volume of patients, and it's also a bigger anatomy that you're working on. But I think the challenge will be to have a way to do it for the hand, the wrist, the foot, the ankle, mm-hmm. um, which are smaller and, again, a little harder to track all those motions. Right. But the knee could help to crack the code, at least from a very basic perspective, and then that can be expanded on for some of these more complex joints. Correct. Yeah, well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that and see how that develops. Switching gears a little bit. So the pandemic has affected daily life in so many ways. And one of the major ones is the cancellation of almost every in-person medical conference that was supposed to happen this year. Um, I know you personally probably have a very hectic schedule uh, normally traveling from one part of the world to another. So conferences are looking at ways uh, to offer courses that can be done from anywhere. And you yourself are offering an innovative virtual meeting in March. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Our foundation, uh, the Product Family Foundation, was started about 12 years ago, and we would spend time outside the U.S. 
doing uh, foot and ankle camps, charitable surgeries, and training and educating. Obviously, once the pandemic hit, that, that no longer became an option. And, and most of our work was primarily in India, but we would go around the globe in different countries doing uh, the same thing. We unfortunately were supposed to be in India in March, and actually half of our team did go. And halfway through our work, the government shut us down because there were just too many people. And, and the pandemic was just getting going in India. Mm-hmm. What we then decided to do is to try to figure out a way that next March, so March of 2021, we could do a virtual conference. And so the idea came about that, could we do something that's more exciting, a little bit more innovative, um, and just a little bit different of a take than just a regular conference. And so the idea is to do a 24-hour conference that basically starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there will be faculty from the Eastern Standard Time Zone um, who will host a one-hour case-based topic-based session. Mm -hmm. And then at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, that faculty, which is in that time zone, will begin their next hour with a separate topic, another set of faculty, and another one-hour session. And we will basically do 24 sessions, 24 hours, nonstop, go around the globe until, so it'll start on on Friday, March 19th, Mm -hmm. and on Friday, March 20th, but it will be nonstop 24 hours. And it will be open not only to surgeons, but really the public at large. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of what we found is that when we are out in other countries and trying to teach and educate the surgeons, there is the loss of care for patients is partly because they don't even know that they have options. Mm -hmm. So our thought is in this 24-hour period, because it's all virtual, there should be no reason that anyone, whether it's surgeon, healthcare provider, or just the, the general public couldn't participate. And so it'll be open to anybody around the globe for 24 hours. And what if you happen to be sleeping during a what's in your time zone, a 3 a.m. lecture that you would normally want to attend? Is it going to be recorded and available after that 24-hour period? The whole 24 hours will be recorded and we will likely release uh, each hour segment later on through our website so that people can can find what they want at any point in time. That's great. Do you have any of the topic areas determined yet? Uh, it will range all the way from minimally invasive surgery to total ankle replacement, 3D printing and limb salvage, athletic issues in, in the foot and ankle patient. We are still finalizing those 24 topics, but they will, uh, again, be things that are relevant for the for the general uh, orthopedic surgeon all the way to the very uh, expert foot and ankle surgeon. And you sort of mentioned right there the uh, your Park Family Foundation. And I know that's something that you do with your wife. I think it's a great story how you came together to decide to do that. So can you just talk a little bit more about how it was founded and the story of the foundation, what you sort of accomplished early on and some of the work that you were doing? Sure. So back in 2007, I was invited to the Indian Orthopedic Association meeting in India, and I took that opportunity to go around uh, India over the course of a a week to two weeks, and I met with lots of orthopedic surgeons. And as I met with people, I was just querying them, you know, how they would treat what we see as routine care here in the U.S., from flat foot deformity to hallux ridges, um, ankle arthritis, and I was shocked to find out that many of those pathologies were just ignored with 
the resounding answer recurrently from these surgeons saying, you know, eventually the patient stops complaining and they go away. Mm-hmm. And I came back to the U.S. and I shared that story with my wife and we said, you know, there's got to be a better way. I mean, these are 1.2 billion people over 2 billion feet being ignored, mm-hmm. not getting the care they need. And my wife's a physical therapist. Um, I'm obviously three foot and ankle. And, and we decided that maybe we should start trying to provide care in India. And the problem was, from our perspective, you can provide care, but if, even if you're there a week, how much care can you really provide? And what happens when you're gone? There's really no sustainability. The, it evolved into a decision to not only provide care through charitable camps and surgeries, but also train and educate the local orthopedic surgeons so that there is local expertise that developed over time. Mm-hmm. So that began back in 09 with our first uh, camps. And fast forward over you know, 11, 12 years, we have now trained over 1,500 orthopedic surgeons. We have seen over 2,000 patients, performed over 500 surgeries. We did the first ankle replacement in India. We published the first homegrown uh, textbook for foot and ankle in India. But we've had a lot of firsts. Um, many of the surgeons that we have that have been with us from the first camp are now asked to give talks internationally mm-hmm. in meetings in Asia, in Europe, in, uh, in South America, in the U.S. US, they are now being seen as as thought leaders for the amount of work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's been a phenomenal evolution. And so foot and ankle, which just 12 years ago was largely ignored in India, now has over 40 surgeons who are dedicating their life to foot and ankle. And they are training and educating the next set of, of, of generation of surgeons. And so it's changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. In addition, my wife, uh, being a physical therapist, wanted to start changing the, the dynamic of foot and ankle physical therapy in India just because that was ignored as well. <laughs> and so at year five of our work, she started doing a foot and ankle physical therapy camp. So that has gone on now. And we have trained and educated over 1500 physical therapists throughout India. Wow. And then finally, my kids wanted to be involved as well. And so they started their own shoe drives called Soul for Souls, where in the months prior to, to leaving internationally, wherever we go at this point, they will collect used in brand new shoes and they are in charge of figuring out where it's going to be delivered to uh, those in need and they have delivered over i believe it's over four thousand pairs of shoes over the years Mm -hmm. and that just continues to grow so it's become a whole family affair and and our work has grown from just this to lots of other things that we do, but it's uh, it's extremely satisfying and phenomenal, and we're just trying to figure out ways with this pandemic to to move um, into different ways to train and educate. That's great. That's that's wonderful. That's so inspiring. Are there pathologies in India that here in the U.S. we sort of just take for granted that are without maybe before the work that you did would be a lifelong debilitating pathology in the foot and ankle there? Absolutely. It, it goes all the way to ankle. I mean, it basically is ankle fractures. And, and even to this day, I'll get cases that are shown to me from India of neglected ankle fractures that were treated by bone setters mm-hmm. non-operatively that are unstable ankles that here in the U.S., I mean, even our interns would say, even the medical students would say that's, that needs surgery. Mm-hmm. And they see people in India and it gets neglected and uh, not cared for. So I think that, uh, you know, it's a process. Again, it's, India's a big country. The world's a, a big place. Foot and ankle is highly underserved around the world. 
and we're just trying to make an impact where we can, uh, whenever we can. And you said you performed or were part of the team that performed the first total ankle replacement there. When was that done? I believe it was 2012. Okay. And how common is total ankle replacement now in India? Unfortunately, uh, there are no orthopedic companies that have entered India with a total ankle replacement as of today. Interesting. So they are waiting for that. Every time that we go to India now, we get to one or two donated. Okay. But we have not been able yet to help. We're trying to help the government get it approved, but it has not yet happened. Interesting. So uh, there would need to be something, a, a bigger change at the, basically the Indian equivalent of the FDA, an approval there before we could see that really becoming an option in the country? Actually, more than that, it would have to be uh, a dedicated effort from a team, uh, from a company outside of India who says and recognizes that there is a need within a vast country like India for Mm -hmm. ankle replacement Mm -hmm. and decides that they will go through the the regulatory process to get it approved in India. That's what it needs. Do you think there is a case for a company to do that, a business case? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Well, uh, that will be another interesting um, an area to watch because that could be a potentially huge market just considering the size of the population there. Absolutely. So I've been saving the best topic for last. A lot of people know you um, as the fantasy doctor on YouTube. Can you talk a little bit about where you got the idea to do this, uh, how you started, uh, what the journey has been as the fantasy doctor? I get the question all the time, uh, what is the fantasy doctor? So fantasy sports is a $3 billion industry in the U.S. alone. And, you know, if you play fantasy sports, you know that you're, you're, you become a quote-unquote fantasy owner where you own these players that are playing sports every single week. <laughs> the problem is, as an owner, you need to know if somebody's injured, do you keep them benched on your roster or do you keep them active in the game? And the problem is a lot of teams, a lot of coaches – won't give the most accurate information on these injuries because they want to use competitive advantage to provide half-truths. Mm-hmm. So that irritated me about seven years ago. I really got irritated by just these half-truths you hear and being on the other side where I've taken care of athletes. And I know what the truth is from looking at the video and I, I know what the injury looks like and what the re- course of recovery would be. So I started doing a written blog. Now, it would take me about an hour to do a written blog. And, and when I first started off, um, it was going very, very well, but people would start asking me to start writing on different topics. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, I became overwhelmed with trying to keep up with the written blog. Right. Video platform back then wasn't as seamless as it was today. So it took me about a year and a half to two years to evolve into a video platform where I started doing these video uh, blogs on these injuries. Right. When that happened, a few PR firms reached out and said, hey, we love what you're doing. Let's see if there's something more formal we can develop. As that happened, we came up with the whole concept, the fantasy doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a way, an easily memorable way for people to know what we were doing. And then we started a company called the Fantasy Doctors, um, and that has evolved over time. So we are now the one of the go-to sources for injury expertise for DraftKings. Mm-hmm. I've been, been on ESPN Radio, SiriusXM, NBC Sports, Yahoo Sports. It's just... It's exploded, mm-hmm. and um, we cover all sports, all injuries, regardless of cricket, swimming, 
football obviously is the lion's share, but the NBA, NFL, and it's been phenomenal. I mean, I have patients who come in to see me. I've never seen them before. They're first-time patients who come into my front desk. They don't even know me as Dr. Parekh. They just ask the front desk, can they see the fantasy doctor? Wow, yeah. It's, it's just kind of funny. And you said it's grown to the fantasy doctors. How many doctors do you have now? We have six six physicians on staff. Okay. We have athletic trainers. We have PTs. We have um, interns. We have medical students, residents. Mm-hmm. So in total, there's about 18 uh, a team of 18 of us right oh, now wow. around the around the globe working on this okay. and constantly growing. Well, because people are, are hungry for the information and they want to know more. Right. And they want it from a reliable resource. I mean, that's a really great angle for education. Um, you're talking about, you know, bringing it back to the digital innovation at Duke and how to get patients educated before they even walk in the door. Uh, here's a great way, a relatable way to get patients educated and interested in some of these very common injuries to understand them better. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think I saw that you're now on TikTok as well. Yeah, we just opened on TikTok. I've already had in the last week over 100,000 views. It's just been crazy. That's great. Well, definitely a lot to keep an eye out on and always a pleasure to speak with you. And, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future as I'm sure there will be uh, multiple updates on multiple fronts. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.